Alpine gardening. That was taken last winter. The snowbank along our, this is the county road. We're a mile from this road where our house is, probably seven feet high. You got a lot of snow. And the question is, how in the world do you grow food in a valley like that? See my pickup there, I have to plow a mile of road down. I get a little help from a couple of neighbors who don't live there, but live in the bigger valley, come up once in a while as a kind of a vacation place. But you have a lot of snow. That's down on at our place, a mile down. The kind of snow that you have, it's almost buried the fountain. That's our solar winter greenhouse. Um, there it is. You'll see some pictures of the gazebo where we hold our little uh, farmer's market. Uh, that's why we don't have a farmer's market on a day like this. Um, that's the orchard greenhouse. But it's working great because that blanket of snow up there, it's two to three feet deep. And there's no insulation in that roof. That is the insulation. And it, it hovers right around 25 in there all winter. If it drops to 20 or 30 below, it might go down to 20 because it's like a cave almost. So the fruit trees are getting a perfect dormant period and they don't get ice and snow and all that. It works wonderful for us. Um, that shows you how deep the snow is. And I would love to tell you that I shoveled all that. Uh, I shoveled some of it where I had to, but we have a walk behind snowblower. But when it gets that deep, they don't work real well. It was just about at its limit where it wouldn't even blow it out. Um, there's a lot of advantages to snow that deep. The ground almost never freezes. It only freezes where you shovel it, plow it under a tree or something like that, which helps a lot, uh, actually. That's the front of the two greenhouses. And I have a piece, the glazing that we use, and I gotta go really fast here. This is it, it's double walled, it's called twin wall, so it has insulative value. The outside is UV coated. They guarantee it for 10 years. In our area, it'll last 20 to 25 years, and then it's still there. I can't tell any difference in growth. It's just the outside's getting kind of yellowish, and it's getting brittle. The inside is just like it was. I don't know how many years, if, you, if the Lord didn't come and you couldn't get any, it might go 30, 40 years before it would literally just kind of maybe fall in there. I don't know. It's a, basically, you replace it once in your life if you live 50 years on your place. Uh, is essentially what happens. It's on the front of that one. The slanted on the front of the other one, also this way. The reason our original, and I've done a lot of experimenting and made a lot of mistakes, our original winter greenhouse was also slanted because the few books that I could read said that was the best thing for solar greenhouses because they're thinking of sun coming in there. Well, but they're talking Arizona or somewhere uh, where it doesn't snow. The snow, as you can see the other one, builds up on something like that. And I was constantly shoveling, trying to keep the front. That's where George Washington came in. I went to Mount Vernon. He had a two-story glass greenhouse on his place that he used to grow starts. I mean, the guy was ahead of his time. And I said, you know what, Linda, that's what we need. So now we have a two-story because the, the sun's only at 30 degrees in the winter, comes in those big windows and floods the whole thing in the wintertime. In the, in the summer, the sun is really high comes in like this and so it has two great big skylights 16 by 16 you can kind of see the dimple there but they kind of snow over because there's no snow uh, sun there anyway in the winter kind of insulates those the main source is just in the front in the winter the other one I want it to snow up and I leave it because it's insulating that big orchard greenhouse so that the fruit trees won't 
uh, get too cold. The only thing that's open is the two side ends, basically. If anybody's interested in this stuff, I actually deal in it, but I'm not pushing it at all. You may be able to get it around here. They make it in triple wall as well. They make it in single wall, which might work well here. Single wall doesn't work for us. It doesn't insulate enough. It's polycarbonate. It actually won't burn. Uh, it will burn up, but it doesn't contribute to the fire. It's the same stuff they make jet canopies out of. It's really tough. Uh, it's hard to break it until it gets really, really brittle. Anyway, so one's dormant. And the other one, we're trying to keep going. This same day, as I showed you before, those over here, it looked like that. That's in February. And it allows us, it does many things for us. It allows us to have winter greens growing up, in, up front. They've been there all winter, so you can have fresh salad stuff. We, you can't grow, for us anyway, with the amount of light, we can't grow tomatoes. We have to until January. But the last tomatoes come out of the greenhouse probably in uh, about the first of November. And then we put them in the root cellar and they will stay. We, we still have a few left. We were eating some before we came. But you can't grow any fruiting thing. There's just not enough light. Beans and all that. But greens do fine. So that's, what, that's one thing this place does. The way we heat it, I've talked about it before. It has a stairway, goes down to the furnace room. That's the cold air return. If you build a family greenhouse and it doesn't have a basement under it, the cold air will pool on your floor and your floor will be cold no matter what you do. It just will be. You give it a place to go and it all disappears and gets heated and comes up as warm air. Um, comes down those steps and that's the heater down there. We've talked about the heater before. It heats water. It heats some air. I heat that water up to probably 200 degrees and it's 200 gallons and that has a lot of BTUs. And sometimes I just leave it there, and it heats the building slowly. And that patio's above that cement there. But I'm not trying to heat this place to 70 degrees, although you can. But I've, I used to try to heat it more in the winter. It actually works really well for eight months. For four months, there's so little light. November, December, January, February, there's so little light that even if you heat it a lot, stuff just grows maybe an inch. It just grows a little, but it doesn't go bad. And you can eat it all winter. But it's pointless to heat it more. The fig tree is dormant. It, drew, uh, it drops its leaves in December. It doesn't need any heat. You just don't want things to freeze in here. That allows us to uh, later grow starts in here really early. I have this picture. This is the little hot tub. But beyond it is that grate. That's where we throw the firewood. But that's also the cold air return for that side of the building. You need both of those. They go down. And so you don't get cold in there. Actually, I heated this up to like 67 before we left. We actually got in the hot tub. It was really nice. I wanted to heat it and put a lot of heat. So when we left, it would just, it, it stays for a long time. I have a young guy there, Ben, that's watching the place. He's never needed to heat it since we left. We've been gone uh, over a week now. He said it was still 56. It only really needs to be 40. 40 to 50 is fine. I don't think you'll have to do anything. When the smoke comes out the top, it takes a 90, goes through another tube, and goes under that bridge. So it's heating mass now all the way out about 50 feet. And I can't emphasize enough how wonderful mass heating is. And a lot of people say, oh, that's so much work, pour all that concrete and all that stone and everything. Well, you make it up later in not having to get all that firewood and everything else. It really works well. See the hot water comes out, we pipe it everywhere to do all kinds of things. It heats the pools, 
you can see the what's happening here is it's going under that bridge. Then it goes, there's a tunnel that we built. This walkway that comes in is just like in the house. The smoke goes through there. This one had more room. You can actually crawl in it. It's that big. It goes up to that little grate there, which is another stomper grate for coming in. It takes 45, goes over, and then goes in that stone mass all the way out the flue. And you can pretty much put your hand in the smoke when it comes out. You've milked all the heat out of your smoke, and it's a clean, hot fire. I left a clean out in that little grate. You can open up. There's a door. I didn't know what to I was in a hurry. I just made a wood door. This is a wood fire smoke flue. I figured eventually it would probably burn. It's all concrete. It doesn't matter. It's never burned because it doesn't get that hot because of all that mass. And I fig I left it there so I could clean it out. It's been close to 20 years now. I've never had to clean it. That's how clean it, it, it burns. So it really does save a lot of time and effort that way. About We're kind of going to go through the seasons here. That was February. This is now March, and the snow is melting back. There's still a lot of snow in the woods and so on. Inside it looks like that. Not a lot different, but now you see there's a lot more flowers coming, and the fig tree, which is a massive tree there, you can just see it starting to put out leaves and so on. It's beginning to come out. A lot of the other plants are coming out. Uh, about this time, the, uh, the uh, avocado tree blossoms. The thing blossoms wonderfully. It's produced a few, but it, they, sit, they set and they fall off. So somebody who's an avocado aficionado can tell me maybe I th this one's self-pollinating uh, we had another one it wasn't so it should work but I think it's not hot and dry enough when it's in blossom and we have a little lemon tree and I mentioned we have gotten up to 15 lemons it's a Meyer lemon they actually do pretty well um, so, uh, that previous picture avocado tree. that's the avocado tree in blossom It, this was when it was pretty young. I, it's clear to the ceiling now. So it looks more like an avocado tree now. The blossoms don't look right. Is that what you're saying, no, or is that the whole tree? It doesn't look like avocado tree. Uh, it, it, it may have got the name of it, but uh, <laughs> maybe that's. It did have small avocados, and yeah, they did taste like avocados. Yeah. But it was but a, a very small avocado. Those very small ones. Most avocados have to have a pollinator. This one doesn't, so it's probably a kind of a specialized variety because I can't, I don't have room for two avocado trees, and I'm not sure they'd work anyway. If this is what we do, we plant something like that, we give it five years, we let it grow, and if it never produces, poop, out it goes, we get something else. So we will see, but I appreciate you telling me that because it could be it's kind of an odd type of tree to be self pollinating. This is uh, in uh, probably late spring, you call it, avocado, or the fig tree now is fully leafed out. Lots of flowers in there. We love flowers. And it's at th about this time that we start all our starts. We do a little more with that. For years, we tried to start things just in the solarium. But the solarium is only 50 or 60 maybe in March. It's fine. It feels good. A lot of seeds don't germinate at that temperature. And most people in big nurseries have, a, they have an electric mat that you can lay out and they plug it in the wall and it heats. And We didn't want anything that would use power if we could, so we put in a tank. And that tank is 80 gallons <coughs> laid on its side. 
cost 20 bucks and I heat water in the pool heater it's piped to here 200 degrees fills that tank and with the door closed it'll heat that room to 80 degrees and then up on our little bench we put all of our starts Linda why don't you tell them all the different kinds we do well we start pretty much everything that we grow uh, we start the melons that we have in the hothouse we start tomatoes we start um, cucumbers squash uh, we don't do beans. I was surprised. We went to a nursery. They had bean starts, but we just sow those in the ground. But water them with 100 degree water. Warm, they like warm that. water so yeah. that they can germinate. <coughs> fat. you can soak. <coughs> maybe you all know this. You can pre-soak green beans and plant them. If you've soaked them overnight, then you plant them the next day. That helps them sprout and pop up faster. However, I even I found out something else radical. I took I had done way too many one year, and I'm not the kind of person I just throw it away, so I dried them the best I could. I put them in a special jar of their own for the next year's season and had them marked, and I put them in the ground. And do you believe that after getting them soaked and then drying them, they germinated and grew green beans just fine? I was amazed. But anyway. Uh, we do keep a lot of our seeds, and I can s explain a little bit more about that later. So We also seeds, do uh, broccoli starts yeah, broccoli. and cabbage starts, all that kind of stuff. We raise, we figure, five or 600 starts. Yeah. We use a lot of them ourselves, and we sell the rest. Some you can't. I mean, they're just too bad. But we all our tomatoes are from our own seed, um, things we like that we use. There's the tank close up. I drain it in the winter because that end of the solarium can freeze a little bit if I leave it closed up. Don't need it in the winter anyway until we begin our season. There's geranium stars just in there. Unfortunately, I didn't know we were going to do this presentation when we had all our starts in there last spring. So I don't have pictures of all the starts. I wish I did. And then again, there you can see the earth that's <coughs> tilled up ready to do the green beans. And the starts are or does the next one have some starts in there? Yeah. It's quite a juggling act because, as you saw, that germination room is very small. So what do we try to do? I have to make a calendar of when I need to start <coughs> what plants because they don't all start at the same time. And it depends on, too, if they're going to go in the greenhouse, if I'm going to sell them at farmer's market, if we're going to put them in the outside garden, if we're going to put them in the hothouse because the time for planting all of those is different. And so I tried to coordinate my time so that I can move some things out of the germination room and put them here in the greenhouse before we've really started to do much in there because there's room where we're going to put the tomatoes and they still grow really well there once they've sprouted and come up and are beginning to really, yeah, put out. So, it, yeah, you have to kind of organize that and keep things moving. Now you can see the orchard greenhouse, all the snow's melted off naturally. It's still really cold outside this time of year, but the snow is largely gone. But if we didn't have greenhouses, you wouldn't be gardening for another month, month and a half outside. It, we walk in here, it's just so wonderful. It's warm and all that, and we can garden. This, this building's 88 feet long and 30 feet wide. So, and it b basically uses no heat except a few stumps in those shoulder seasons because by the time it comes on, it's being solar heated. And that's the solar collector we talked about. 
and and this is the kind of plants we do all our tomatoes and our green beans and squash and melons and peppers all that stuff gets warm water and this is how the shutters work up there uh, this is the apple in blossom you can see the shutters above that protects them this time of year we're closing them every night because it could freeze any night and it keeps them nice and warm in there one thing we can talk about is pollination we're so far from other fruit trees and we've had a neighbor try honeybees honeybees die in our valley they won't live it's there's such a short flowering season for the wildflowers maybe six weeks um, they just don't get enough honey they can't feed themselves let alone give you honey so they die out he I think got 15 hives he put three in our place uh, and some of them put inside this building they survived for three years but they still didn't make it um, well they were yeah I was telling someone else they tried just to get out of there they didn't really like the environment well they do a little bit on this they'd see the open sky and say voila you know it's summer <laughs> and they'd all fly out and go out there and it's and 20 die. degrees and <laughs> Yeah. and they didn't come back. We do have bumblebees, native bumblebees in our valley and wasps. Bumblebees live in the ground so until the snow melts they don't come out. Occasionally we have long cold springs and it just they don't blossom until late April maybe or mid-April and the bumblebees have come out. When one bumblebee finds these trees that time they're desperate for flowers they tell the whole neighborhood <laughs> and we have bumblebees full in there and they do all our pollinate. Uh, and we get an abundant crop. We used to have cherry trees. Um, cherry trees were very problematic for pollination. The years that the bumblebees got them, we had big cherry crops. But it was so few times, cherries are so hard to cross-pollinate, we've cut them all down. The things that work the best for us are peaches, plums, and apricots. And we learned, took us 25 years, anything with a pit is usually self-pollinating. The tree, it's all you have to do, we used to pollinate like with a little brush and all that, you just shake the tree and you're done if they're self-pollinating. Anything with a seed like apples or pears and cherries are kind of in between are not self-pollinating. They have a few varieties they claim might be, we're trying some of those, but generally you have to have two varieties and for us that's a little problem because you got to get pollen from one pear tree to the other pear tree. Um, and actually with pears it's not that hard. They're such a big fruit, you know, it doesn't take very long. It's beautiful work. They're all in blossom. I mean, you go there and, and it's been a long winter and you go in there, it's so gorgeous and so warm. I don't really mind it, um, but it was a problem with cherries. They're just a tiny, there's so many blossoms. And my, this is just my opinion. The reason cherries are difficult, tiny blossom. They do have self-pollinating ones e anyway, but I think the blossoms on cherries have a tiny window. Each blossom only has maybe two or three hours on one day that it is ready. Because I've gone over and over them with a brush. And we get a pit, we get some cherries. They just don't pollinate. But you get bees in there that are going over them all day long for a week and a half, and you get lots of cherries because they hit every blossom at its right time. That's what I think happens. So we've had four cherry trees, we got rid of them all because they just don't work for us. Yeah. This is how the shutters work. Occasionally we only do two if we just want to vent it a little bit. Sometimes all open, uh, all closed, move the whole roof in five minutes. And it, it is the best thing we've ever come up with. It's just sheet metal uh, screwed to the back of two by six. 
We started out with two by fours that worked too. And originally I started with just the aircraft cable instead of sheet metal. And I figured it was up in the air and the wood would stay dry, it didn't. And it eventually rotted. This way it's pretty much protected and they overlap. <coughs> As the season goes on, the first thing we get out of there are figs. We get tons of figs. I mean, maybe not literally, but hundreds and hundreds of figs, two different crops. Uh, this is not your standard fig, and we just don't have time to tell you the story. I got this from an older guy down in California. Uh, it's not your mission fig. They, they have to be pollinated with a wasp. This is self-pollinated. And you can start them from just a sprig, and I've done that for people, and I'm going to do it, I think, for my good neighbors, uh, Merlin and family down uh, in southern Montana, a little farther. And what kind of fig was it? Was it I... The guy was Hungarian. I could hardly understand him. He didn't know what it was. It's a, it's a green-yellow fig. I've looked and looked on the Internet. I think maybe I know. I found things that kind of look like it. The first crop, they can get that big, totally juicy. The second crop, you get maybe 10 times as many, and they're about this size. And as far as calories, I mean, they're so sweet. There's so many, we can't even keep up with them. Uh, we dry some. Linda freezes a lot. She's learned if you freeze them when they're mushy even and they kind of, you freeze them, mix them with raspberries in the winter and they make wonderful um, smoothies because the fig doesn't have a lot of taste. It's just sweet and you put a sweet with it. And we eat lots of them fresh and the people in the valley now, we sell them. They can't believe we got figs in the North Fork and we sell them at our farmer's market. A lot of beans come on. We've showed you these pictures, all the raspberries that we can pick. Now the outside garden, about May, we can start planting in there. But we have to watch it because we plant potatoes about Mother's Day, but they don't come up for three weeks, and all during that time it's freezing, you know. By the 1st of June, we get occasional frost, and so we can use our sprinkler system. But we start planting then. i got to tell you a little bit more about the fence. <coughs> if it wasn't for that cap up there, you saw all the snow on it and the other one, it rots the wood right away. And the bottom, it's hard to tell here, but you can kind of see um, the bottom part has three feet of hardware cloth. It only goes to the ground, maybe in a little, because we have tons of squirrels and mice and rabbits and all that kind of stuff, and it keeps those folks out. The ones you can't keep out are chipmunks and pine squirrels, because they can climb anything. And pine squirrels, they never heard of a strawberry, but one of them finds one. Oh. That's the best pine cone in the world, and you start losing a lot of strawberries. So it's, a, it's always a battle. We have so many animals because it's a, it's a wilderness, and they're all hungry because, you know, it's hard to make a living out there. So we build a good-sized fence, and this keeps the deer out. They can't jump it, and only the tiny ones can squeak through. I've had that happen a few times. They're scared to death. You run at them. And they literally just bang themselves up trying to get out. So and they don't really hurt themselves, but they don't come in again. We've had grizzly bears dig holes under the fence and once tear part of the fence down maybe three, four times in 30-some years. And they're after one thing, carrots. They leave the whole they potato patch. They go in there when the carrots are harvested and think they're going to get carrots in there. They get a taste because carrots <laughs> are so sweet in the fall. They love them. Yeah, they they leave all them. the potatoes not knowing it's all the calories they would want, but they don't like them. 
Fair enough. They, they don't like beets. That tells you something about beets. <laughs> they love carrots. That's they funny. don't eat. <laughs> sorry, they they don't eat cabbage uh, or anything like that. Just carrots. That's what they really love. So we've. It's six feet. They um, deer can jump six feet, but they don't like that little metal hanging off the edge because they catch their hooves. They've never tried to jump it. Uh, <coughs> the solution to carrots is you have to pick them before they're fully ripe. Somehow the bears know when they're at when they're really mature, and so if you pick them a week or so early, because carrots do really well there, they're frost hardy, and we put them in the root cellar. I showed a picture like this before. This is what that fence looks like, and you can see without that shield on top how fast it would rot all that wood. That's in the early summer. Um, you see in the background is that hot house. We found there's some things that really like hot weather. They just like Texas weather. Uh, melons are that way. Uh, squash is that way. Green beans will actually thrive in there. Tomatoes will grow, but actually they do better in our other greenhouse. We get some here. Um, and so we get that started. This is what it looks like about June, late June perhaps. And the first thing we get out of the garden is usually peas and greens. And I told you about the sprinkler system that runs the potatoes, keeps the potatoes going. There's all the greens. Greens, almost anything in the green family, well, kale and, and Swiss chard, spinach, all the different lettuces. lettuces. They all love it in those cool temperatures and we can grow them all summer, whereas here they probably bolt uh, but you can keep them going. And we talked about the mulch. Yeah. Uh, some of these we're going to go fast because you've seen that. About. Mulch is wonderful, and it's really helped our ground. We get some strawberries. We, the only way we get a lot, we've made a cover for them, and then you get a lot of strawberries. Otherwise, they frost off, just like a fruit tree. Back in the middle part of the summer, we're starting to get lots of fruit, and you've seen some of these before. Uh, the fruit trees are amazing in there because they, they don't, get up any sp late spring frost they don't get ice another problem you can some of you that live even in this part i've talked to a number of people as i was coming along they said they get a lot of late spring frost and it kills off a lot of their fruit the tree's fine so if you're having that trouble you ought to build a we call it a fruit barn like this it works wonderfully you wouldn't have to heat it at all and you probably you could grow all kinds of stuff in there all winter that we can't um but because it gets a good dormant period, you get a lot of fruit, and you get fruit every year virtually, unless it's a cyclical tree. Those are Reliance peaches. These are Red Haven peaches, Bartlett pears, D'Anjou pear. We love D'Anjou pears. They, they, and these two have to be pollinated together. Plums and apricots. Apricots bear huge crops of apricots. Um, and these are Tilton apricots. When they're truly ripe, they're really soft, so you can't really ship them, and that's when they're super sweet. And often apricots in the store are a little tart, and that's the reason is because they can't really ship them when they're ripe. So you've got to have your own tree to get the full pleasure out of it. Lots of tomatoes about this time. Uh, these are Rutgers. And there you can see the watering system. Tomatoes don't like to be sprayed because they can, you know, get fungus and so on so we have a drip system under all of them and they grow up on these you see the the cages they're about this big around you've all had that this tall they grow clear out of that uh, and we have tomatoes growing up until near the end of October and then it starts to freeze in there 
nothing like good old, I grew up in Indiana, Indiana summer tomatoes. These have that taste, not the cardboard you buy in the store. And the people love them at our f farmer's market because otherwise they're buying them out of the store. And even in the summer, most store ones don't taste that good. And they love those tomatoes. This is later in the summer with uh, all the squash. And those are some of the melons we get in there. They're small, but they're from our own seed, and they're super sweet. We can't grow the really big, big melons. But we're into non-hybrid stuff because I want to be able to have our own seed supply. Cabbage grows really well there. We talked about fava beans. Uh, they are frost hardy. It's the only other legume so far that we've found for a protein crop that will survive frost in the summer. What's the name of the beans? They're fava beans. F-A-V-A? Yes. Look them up. They're like a large, they get this big and they're, they're like limas. But when they get really mature, they're full of protein. They're great nutritious food, but they're kind of tough and have a strong taste. It's not bad. Uh, if you really pressure cooker them and put them in soup, they're, they're fine. Uh, let, you can dry them, but you put them in the ground, in the, when the, cold, the ground's really cold and they come from the Middle East, you put them in there and they pop right out of the ground. They're just uh, they're amazing. They, they really grow and they grow really fast because they have a big bean. They get three, four feet tall. We have to uh, tie them up because they want to fall over. Unfortunately, chipmunks have found those too, so we're working with them. We live trap a lot of them. Lots of dill, <coughs> broccoli, lots of berries that we put away freezing in the root cellar. You see the cabbage up there. A cabbage likes to be about 30 to 32 degrees, and so we've had a hard time. If anybody knows the secret, I'd like to know of keeping cabbage for six or eight months. We can keep it fine for a few months but it won't keep through the whole winter. The only time we have, and this works, but it's a problem. We put, because I, I wondered, how are we going to do this? So I went out in a big snow. You saw our big snow banks. I just dug into one, put some cabbage in there, and buried it, because the snow would keep it at about freezing. I went back later. It was perfect. It was fr basically frozen a little, but it was fine. The deer found it. <laughs> and they dug into it, and we're eating it all. But it works. It's just we're now we're going to have to put it in a fenced-in <laughs> snow freezer. What a sense of smell, huh? <laughs> the problem is that that's a little hard. Okay, Jerry, would you get a cabbage for me today? I got <laughs> to run down there and with a shovel and dig it all out, and it gets, it gets pretty hard. It's got to be a better way. I've talked to people who uh, did mission work in Ukraine. I don't know if any of you are from Ukraine, but... Ukraine grows a lot of cabbage. It's similar to Montana in climate in many ways, rich soil. Uh, but they went into one of their schools that they had over there, and they raised a lot of cabbage, and they had a big root cellar, and, they, and downstairs it was all on shelves. All of them, they said, had like quarter inch to half inch of mold over all of them. They just peel out the mold and the outer leaves and still use it. I can't do that. Maybe you can. So I'm, we're still trying to figure out. We can keep them. We still have cabbage now. Uh, we'll probably be fine into February, but eventually they go bad before the next cabbage come on. So we're still working on that one. Peaches, apricots, we can, lots of them. There's the root cellar. We've talked about that. Linda also does a lot of tomatoes, cucumbers, and all that kind of stuff. 
This is our farmer's market again, just some different pictures of it that uh, we operate in the summertime. It's a wonderful business, and if we had no other way of making money, this is our only family business, you could ramp this up. Uh, it's a lot of work. You don't make a lot of money, per, this is our experience anyway, per hour that you put in. But we want the food anyway, and we sell about $1,000 a summer, and you could easily do more than that. But we found, and we're not going to have time to do all the family business stuff, the way to have successful family business in the country for us is don't try to depend on a single source of income. You have a farmer's market. You do a little cabinetry in the winter. You do, I do water systems. I put in hydro systems occasionally. We tutored kids. I mean, you do a little this and a little of that. You put it all together, and you have a good income. Individually, it might not. And farmer's market's wonderful because it's a ministry, too. We're going to, all got to do that. I got to, we got to get to family business a little bit. For some of you who have children, a wonderful business we had for our daughter when she was younger. So we got to get flowing, all kinds of stuff. This is the farmer's market um, all the way through. And all the flowers you can produce in your greenhouses. Makes for beautiful lawns and all kinds of stuff you can do with them. Even Chloe likes to sleep by them. And you don't have to buy all that stuff. These are some of this is flowering dogwood up by the house. And finally, in the fall, we get into digging the root crops. Um, potatoes do very well there. Uh, we have no potato worms. We don't have potato beetles. We don't have anything. All we have is frost. And with our spring water, we can solve that problem. Whatever problem you have with potatoes, you got to figure it out. Every place has different issues. But we grow about uh, 1,000 pounds, 800 to 1,000. We've done more than that. We're actually going to plant probably two more rows because people have discovered them, especially the red. I have a note in here. I just don't have time to read where the lady says, your potatoes are so wonderful. We're still eating them. Everybody wants more and more. Because potatoes are one of the things. If you buy them commercially, they're one of the things that uses a lot of pesticides where they grow them. And it's, it's what's called systemic. They spray it on the plant, goes in the plant, in the whole everything. It's a lot worse than just pesticide on the outside. So you want good potatoes. There they are. We got to hurry up. Uh, onions. We pick all the onions. And when by the time we pick them, usually late October, it's so cold outside, they will not dry. So we put them in our orchard. And that, big, that great big stump burner becomes our dryer. It works really well. And once they're dried, we hang them all in our potting room, which stays about 35. It's alongside the solarium there. And so anytime you want an onion, you just go down and get one. It's hanging. It's wonderful. Or a few. <laughs> or a few. Cabbage, there's the cabbage stored. And a lot of those are still there now. But we've eaten maybe half of them. There's our last thing that actually produces is our little olive tree. And it will grow a lot bigger. We have great hopes for it. We just use salt water to cure them. And it is self-pollinating. And that's picking figs, the second crop. Another thing we do, <coughs> just before it freezes down, now kale, as you all know, is really frost hardy, but it, it has its limits. And before it gets to 10, 15 degrees or zero, we dig up a bunch and put it in our orchard greenhouse that never gets below about 20 or 25, and it will survive all winter in there, and then goes to seed the next spring, and that's where we get our kale seeds. And you can eat the leaves, too, in the, in the wintertime. Oh, 
Okay. And okay, here's broccoli seeds. Also the uh, uh, chard, I think, was there. Okay, <laughs> seeds are easy to gather, and you know, you can read a book on keeping your own seed, which I browsed through one at one time, and there were a lot of seeds that, frankly, I said, if that's what it takes, forget it, because it was so complicated. However, mm, through experimentation and <coughs> learning from some other people, it can be really easy. There are a few basic rules you need to remember. You need to try to get your seed as mature, you know, the dill, for instance, lettuce, um, seeds and all of that. Let it mature as, as long as you possibly can. And when it's either going to all fall on the ground or the rain's going to come if it's outside and ruin it all, well, <coughs> then you've got to just pick it and hope it's mature enough. And you need to get it dry. It needs to be dry <coughs> when you store it. You can see the little Ziploc bags there that are full of seeds. Um, also the debris, you know, if you read about it, they want you to get rid of all the debris that's left around the seed or in the seed when you harvest it, like lettuce. I mean, it's like full of fluff when you're done. And you wonder if there's any lettuce seed in there. However, I found that's beneficial because if it's all dry, it's not going to ruin your seed. And when you go to uh, plant it, you can just go, fa I like fast and easy and not redundancy of going back and pulling all the <laughs> wonderful plants out of the ground because it's too thick. So if you leave that debris in there, it serves as helping to space out space the seeds, out the seeds in right. your furrow. And then it saves you time later, definitely saves you time. Now, you couldn't sell it commercially that way, of course. But I found that also with, um, well, all of them. I don't worry about that. Now, Read tomato? off all this stuff you're keeping. Ah, okay. We're trying to get so we're keeping all of our seed. We're still working on a few. We do dill, kale, lettuce, um, and melon, and cucumbers. Those are done a little different. I take the seeds out of a really big, ripe, wonderful melon. Um, and you can do that with peppers um, uh, and cucumbers. And you just put them on a piece of wax paper, let them dry, and when they're really, really dry, just pick them up. And that usually doesn't have much around it because it came out of the meat of the, of the melon or whatever. And dry them, put them in a Ziploc bag, put them down in the root cellar. Of course, potatoes, potatoes are your seeds. Peas, peas are your seed. Uh, we did, this is a trick I learned from a lady. Uh, Amish? Yeah, she was an Amish, Amish lady about 200 miles from us. We, we went were over there because we know they're gardeners, and we learned. Yeah, we were visiting and we saw a greenhouse, <coughs> so we went to the greenhouse. It was advertised on the road. And she had lots and lots of tomato plants started that she was going to sell. And she told us how she starts her tomato plants. And that was one of them that I definitely would never worry about saving after all the stuff they told you to do. You're supposed to let the pulp kind of get frothy and then, <laughs> then three rinse days. It, then and put rinse it in it the blender to get rid of all the so Anyway. This is the way you do it. It works I, great. What she did, <laughs> she says you take a tray. You can see the trays up at the top there of the ceiling and the root cellar. You take a tray. You sprinkle a quarter inch of nice soil, loamy soil. You take a tomato, a pick again, a nice, big, juicy, mature 
There's a slice laying in there right there. Then you take and you sprinkle another quarter inch of dirt over the top of that. <coughs> you mark them so you know what kind of tomato you have. You stick them up high, um, like in the root cellar, a cool, dark place. And they just sit there for four or five months. We just leave them there till near the end of March. We pick, bring them out. We water them with warm water and keep them in a warm place. Like our furnace room, yeah. no and light. And then they start sprouting. We'll immediately get them out of the furnace room because there's no sunshine. And we get them into sunshine down at the greenhouse and keep watering them with warm water. And they come up like a carpet like bed. Like grass. And when I first saw <laughs> that, I said, oh, oh this is not going to work. How do you separate all these tomatoes? Well, I waited till the true leaves were out on these little guys and uh, just happened to want to transplant them when the soil wasn't real wet. I hadn't just watered it in the last few days, so the soil was a little dry. So when I would dig into them with my spade, to just they just fell apart. And here are the roots on the tomato plant that was now about this tall. And I had a bunch of six-inch pots ready to go. I just stuck it in pressed it down a little bit. They Works didn't grand. skip a beat. They kept growing and they were the most amazing best tomatoes I have ever done. So simple. Now that I can handle. <laughs> right. And so yeah, that is an easy way to do your tomatoes if you want to. And then this shows you where we keep our seeds. We put them in containers and uh, make sure they're airtight as much as possible and put them in a cool So this place is like our own little seed bank. And it yeah. works wonderful down the dry root cellar. <coughs> Up close, we have them all labeled what we use. It's good. I told you this is the kind of soil we started with. Don't get discouraged. Um, we picked rocks for 30 years. And the rocks, uh, many of our roads are graveled with from, from, our, from our, uh, our garden. That's the kind of soil you get out. There's our compost pile again. One of the other things we do, we talked about this a little bit. This is last fall. It, now it's all brown, it's cold, it's late October, it's even snowed a little bit usually, and we transplant in all kinds of greens. And there they are, kale, we got Swiss chard, green onions, um, you can see it all there in the beds, and we have beet greens, and parsley, and lettuce upstairs. I just thought I'd throw these pictures in. This was the first week of November this past year, this past fall. Um, snow starts to come in November. And you can see how fast it would be. But I opened the door so you could see if you just walk in, it looks like that. A little farther in like that. And you have beautiful flowers and a lot of food. And it's wonderful. Greenhouses are worth it. It's, okay, even a few tomatoes. Got to hurry, hurry. Here's, here's Misty looking longingly. This is the orchard greenhouse, also at that time. And we picked all the last of the tomatoes before we let it freeze, put them in the root cellar. That was our final harvest. They, all those green ones even will usually ripen. And then we just, and you can see, well, why don't we keep it going? Well, pretty soon there just isn't enough light, so we just let it go. Within a week or so, it freezes in there lightly, and the fruit trees simply go into dormant mode. Otherwise, for that month that we have to keep it going, we use the stump burner. Blueberries, all that sort of thing. I put in, a, these are our garden pests. You all have grasshoppers. <laughs> we have problems. And these are the grizzly bears. This is our wonderful, cute, lovable, terrible ground squirrel. They can dig really deep. They dig under your fences. They don't climb. 
but they love gardens. And I've trapped as many as 100 in a year. Once I got them trapped out, because they only go about 100 feet from their den, then now it's down to like 10 to 15, maybe 20 a year. So other North Fork Gardens. This is a neighbor. Property adjoins us. See, they have a greenhouse too. They have a fence around their garden. They're not there year-round. That's what it looks like in their greenhouse. They grow mostly flowers, but some tomatoes as well. And a lot of mass in there. This is another greenhouse another neighbor had. And it's attached to their garage on the south side. So it kind of heats both. This is what it looks like in that greenhouse. Uh, Petty family rented there for like five years. And so they used the greenhouse. It's amazing what a greenhouse will do. There's a lot of stuff that they grew in there as well. And it brings you full circle. You're back to winter again. But really, our winter is pretty short. When you think about when we start and when you get the final food, it's not that bad. Um, anyway, that's the end of that. We're going to quickly go into family business because we only have 15 minutes. So if I can get that. Some of the family, I've already told you about our school program, so I'm going to skip that. Some of you may didn't, didn't hear about that, but we just don't have time. So this section is, is family business, your ministry to the outside world, and recreation. You've got to have all of that or your kids aren't going to like it, okay? And so I went into the, this is the program with the kids that we had. Oh, I t promise you I'd tell you what some of those kids are. The, the, the girl on the right is now a nurse practitioner. Uh, next one, she works for uh, like ADRA-type work. Uh, Shannon worked uh, in uh, some of the uh, youth camps. Laurel's now a doctor. And uh, I think I, maybe I did mention some of these, did I? Okay. The, the guy on the right was a really brilliant guy, great writer. He ended up working as a writing aide and a driver for one of the senators from Maine. He's from Maine. Uh, the next guy over is now an osteopath. He's a doctor. The other guy, next one, he took a, uh, a major in... Italian, of all things. Found out you can't make a lot of money knowing Italian, so he's actually doing medical work now. The next guy runs a well business of his own, repairs wells. He went to Andrews for a while. And the other guy graduated from Southern with a business degree and now runs a mason business with his dad. Um, it's wonderful. They're all like our kids. But this is one year's group. And that was mountains we climbed, all that sort of thing. <coughs> That's Donald graduating. We took him rafting, canoeing on the rivers, all kinds of trips um, that made him love it. And of course, come home to wonderful meals cooked by Linda. Uh, they put on programs for the community, Valentine programs. This was a group we had 10 that year. All kinds of trips, some around the world, others locally. Work program, we've gone through a lot of that. This was the boys' bunkhouse they stayed in. <clears throat> We've remodeled it to a cottage now. This is Ben's graduation again, um, our last graduation. One of the wonderful things about our program, every student gave a graduation speech. You know how so often it's just the president of Val Victoria and everybody else feels like they don't really count. Well, here, everybody counted. And I tell you, we could never get through these without tears coming to our eyes because the parents were there. 
and the kids would get up and you know it was a wonderful time and you don't want to miss that it's one of the nice things you can have in a small school now were some of our former graduates who our last graduation they gave us a little gift reason I put this here the uh, man on the right here Wayne is the one that started this in our school program he's the one that called me up so you tutor my kids I had taught them in grade school he had a plane he said I'll fly him up there and there were grass strips. He'd buzz my house, almost come in the front windows, and I knew it was Wayne. And he'd go land, and I'd go up there and get his kids. They'd stay overnight. I tutored them. I knew them. And two weeks later, he'd come back the next day, and two weeks later, he'd come again. In the winter, he paid my gas to go to his place, and I'd stay overnight there. $50 a month. That was our only income at that time. Somebody heard we did that, said, you have a school? And I said, no, and it went from there, and we never advertised, and that's how our school program began. So Wayne just passed away. We went to his funeral a few months ago. Wonderful man. Well, the next uh, two, you may know them. That's Fred and Velma Bevan. They, for a long time, he was the youth director in the Lake Union Conference. He helped inspire me to love nature. This is all at Rochelle's wedding. The, the other couple there are the couple that were mentors for her wonderful Christian people at Canadian University College, where she went. And they took her into their home and because sometimes the college environment was not as spiritual as it should be, but in their home it was. This is one of our former students. He lives in the area now. We go mountain climbing together. This is another one of our students. There's family. He runs that um, program in Nicaragua. He, f he runs a flying business. He takes people out that would never get to a hospital and survive otherwise. He has a grass strip on the place, that's Clint. Uh, some of you may know the Hanleys, he grew up in Wyoming. Uh, that's the kind of people he was helping. And we rented cabins on our place, our old mistake house. It, it's a great way to make money. We now rent the, this one. And we have other, I'll tell you in a minute, uh, how other people made almost a full living out of that. We just make a supplemental one. This is what it looks like inside, it's just simple little kitchenette, nice little bedroom, now has a double bed, and there's the aspen that we used uh, to decorate it. Of course, our farmer's market, we make some money doing that. And I wanted to mention here, when you start running gardens in, in farmer's markets, as word gets around. This is a public high school group from 50 miles away. The guy heard we had greenhouses, the teacher. He called me up, said, Jerry, heard you have greenhouses. We want to build a greenhouse at our, at our high school. Would you consult for us? I said, sure. So he's been up, saw our place, all that. Now he brings, this, time, this fall he brought a whole group of students, of high school students. They were very secular, but they all loved nature. And he brought them to see the greenhouses. He was on a trip up the valley to raft down the river. And word goes out. People know we're vegetarians. They know you're Seventh-day Adventists and it helps break down prejudice. It's a wonderful thing. We also, I don't have a picture. I have a picture of these kids. That's the kids. Uh, this was last fall from that high school. We also have a group that comes for about seven years now from the University of Montana. They have an ecology class, and the guy heard about our place. He brings them up there to see the valley, but he brings them to our greenhouses because they say, you know, people can live in harmony with nature, and the kids say, okay, who is? He said, I'll show you somebody. And, they, and the kids, these college kids are overwhelmed. A lot of them, they want to live that way. They think it's wonderful. And ag again, it's a, it's a way that you can witness. 
Another way that I make money, had for years, there's all kinds of summer people up there. And the cabins sit for 10 months out of the year. They want somebody to look after them. And in our area, any tourist area like that, they want somebody that they can trust. And if, they, if you learn the trust of the community, people will hire you to take care of their cabins. They just want somebody. I just walk in or snowshoe into this cabin once a month. I just look at it, open the door, make sure grizzly bears haven't or anybody's broken in and anything, write him a little letter. It's a great way to make a living. And he, it's good for him. If you get enough of these, I know one family that actually does this for about 20 or 25 people. It's a lot of their income. I just did three. And it's, it really works well. I also did small contracting. I didn't really need to when we have a school program, but people always want somebody to build. And just this one little building, it's, in it how it's for fire protection. It has a big tank in there and a generator, and the guy wanted me to build that. Just that one building, there was $4,000 worth of labor. You only have to do that maybe five times. You have a full income. You only need to make maybe twenty to $25,000 if you don't have any expenses. And it's, you have a lot of discretionary income. So it can work well for you. If you've got to make 50 or or hundred, you're going to give half of it to Uncle Sam is what happens. And, of course, what can you do with your family in a situation like this? Our little girl, she grew up there. What was she going to do for a living? We made this little uh, house for her we talked about. When she was, what, nine, I think, uh, Linda came up with this idea because Rochelle was very outgoing. Um, she was go-getter, and she wanted to make her own money. So we said, well, you got to start your own business. It was the best thing we did because it taught her money management and all that. Anyway, she's nine years old. She starts making all these kind of wreaths. That's one of them. It's in our home. Um, this is another one still in our home. She made baskets like this. That's her when she was a teenager with some of her creations. And later, these are ones that were made for her wedding. She took them to town. When we would go to town anyway, maybe 20 of them, she'd go to a florist and show her little basket. She said, Dad, I want you to go in. I said, no, you go in. That was a real step for her, but she learned self-confidence. She walked in by herself. I make these baskets. I make them all from native materials right here in Montana. I make them at our home. Would you like to buy some of these? See, you can put flowers in. Like, I mean, she, and people say, yeah, I'll take 10 of those. I'll take five of these, six of those, whatever. She, did, she was making a good living. Then pretty soon, a, a wholesaler from Seattle came into one of these florists saw these little baskets and he knew they didn't come from him. He's bringing stuff from Mexico, Malaysia, I mean all over the world where people are making stuff. And he said, where are you getting these? Well, there's this little girl lives way up in the woods in the North Fork. She makes these. They're all Montana made. He said, I can sell those. Who is she? He contacted her and pretty soon she was selling him thousands of them. By the time she went to college, she had over $20,000 in her college account. She learned, she, the worst thing for her, when she started making some real money, I said, well, you know, you got to pay taxes. Taxes? They're going to take money? Well, I'm a kid, you know. But <laughs> she, I taught her to be faithful to Caesar, too. And it was the hardest thing she did, really. She didn't mind paying tithe or return her tithe. She gave some offerings. She was very frugal. I always told her, you buy some skis, stuff you want, but put most of it in the bank, which she did. Later, when she decided to go to med school, Mon I got to tell you this story. Montana does not have a medical school. We only have, we just passed a million people in the whole state um, here not long ago. 
And <clears throat> so they have a program. It's called the Whammy and the Witchy. It stands for Washington, Alaska, Montana, Idaho. A lot of these states don't have their own med schools. So they will, they select certain students. It's kind of a, it's a competition thing. You have to be interviewed and all this sort of stuff. And if you're picked, the one that she was in, they picked just six students. And you can go to any one of 17 medical schools in the West, and one of them is Loma Linda, if you can believe that. And they will pay all your tuition, basically. And you don't have to come back to Montana, but they hope you will. So she applied for that. She wrote her story. She talked about her mission trip she'd done and all of that. She was picked as one of those six. That comes out of tax dollars. So she got it all back. <laughs> yeah. Almost $100,000 in scholarships that she went to school on. The Lord will watch out for you if you're faithful. Just going to talk. She also did stonework for neighbors. That's her stonework that she did, somebody's greenhouse. She built furniture like this as well for her business. This one is 20 years old. It's still sitting in Glacier National Park at one of the tourist stops there as one of their decoration things. She, she sold all kinds of stuff. We took her on mission trips, educational trips. Folks, if you live in the country, keep your expenses down. You'll have the money and the time to actually do this stuff with your family. You're not going to be working at the office eight hours every day. It works that way. It worked that way for us. And because of that, she, she ended up with a real world view and wanted to be a doctor to help people. This is in uh, Nepal at Shear Memorial Hospital. Some of you may have been there. Um, she worked with some folks. We went to a village there. It was 14 miles from the nearest road, um, not town. We had to hike all the way in. They were running a little clinic. And uh, she worked there for, uh, we were there for what, two weeks? Two weeks, I think. Um, this was an emergency case. This little boy had fallen off of one of their, uh, um, what do they call them there? Where they grow rice and all that, one of their patties. He'd only fallen six or eight feet but injured his side. He did not survive. He had to be trucked out. Other neighbors took him with this pole. He's in the, he's in the tarp there, 14 miles to get him to the nearest road where they could get him finally to a clinic somewhere, but he didn't make it. She grew up hiking, loving nature. She's still hiking with the family. Um, it's a wonderful tradition. She grew up canoeing, still canoeing, climbing mountains with dad. Um, this is Mount Jackson. It's over 10,000 feet. Um, this is growing up at, this is at the top. It made wonderful companionship between us as parents and Rochelle. And she learned to love country living. There she is graduating <coughs> from our little school, high school, then from college, med school, met the love of her life, Ted, and they were married in the solarium she helped build. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Ted's a wonderful musician, and his family brought a lot of grace and elegance to our home. You've seen these pictures. Still hiking together. She loves to ski, do all kinds of stuff. I've got to go through these really fast. This is another way you can make money, actually. They needed a home near town where they could stay when they're working in the hospital. But they didn't want to spend a lot of money. So this happened to be in 2008 or so when you had the crisis. 
this was a foreclosed home. It had never been finished. And so they got it for a song, and we helped them remodel it. Um, and I got just a couple pictures here. That's what it looked like when they bought it. And now actually, let's see. That's what it looked like when they bought it. See the railing? It was really bad. That's when we remodeled it. And those flowers, a lot of them come from the Tamarack Springs greenhouse, of course. And she puts them all over, put in a whole new floor, all this stuff. You can work together as a family. That's what it looked like, and now it looks like that. They put a lot of value into it, and they love to ski up there together. And now they make tons of money on it because they found when they're in the North Fork, they can rent this place because it is in a tourist place. So they rent it a lot during the season, and it pays for the entire um, house that they all the insurance taxes and everything will eventually pay for the house so if you have the skills to remodel something you may not do it in an area like this but you can rent things like that it's a good thing you can do with your family um, that was our hotel when we went to Nicaragua I talked about their mission trips work that they did um, Linda and I were the pharmacy people and I may not look classy there but that's my interpreter because I didn't know any Nepalese. And <clears throat> kind of sad in a way. What do you suppose the, the most common medicine was that we gave out? It was dog dewormer. It was dewormer, but they gave it to the dogs and the kids. It's so sad. I mean, that's the, one of the biggest problems they have. And they have to give it to dogs too, because if they don't, the kids get it from the dogs again right away. That was the local church. We, I put these in because I want you to, we as people live in the country, of all people should have the time and the desire to help our neighbors around us all over the world. And so we love to go on mission trips. This was their local church. It doesn't look like much. Maranatha had come in a while back. They put up these wonderful one-day churches, but they're just a roof. And it's left with the local people to, and they had never gotten that far, so we were helping them to for, uh, form it all up, to pour concrete, so they can start putting some block up and have their finished church. These are some of the, you've got to have a, a community of believers to work with. Uh, I think that's a wonderful thing as well. This is the other two kids in that family being baptized in the river I told you about. They look really happy now, and they were happy to be baptized, but they were chilly when they got done. This is another Adventist family. What they do for nearly all their, is that the bell I got to quit? Um, all their living in the summer is made from cabins. So that's their home, and that's the view from their home. That They're about seven miles south of us. They built these cabins. They're just small cabins, and they're, really, they're virtually booked solid the whole summer. And, and it's a good income. And their kids help clean them all, so it's a family business. They, get, they make money that way. It's a good thing. It's seasonal, but I'll tell you something I've learned about country businesses seasonal is good because it gives you time to go on mission trips to be with your kids and all the rest but you got to learn to be self-disciplined enough that the money you make in the season that you can work is good for the whole year and then you have a lot of time off that's they're very nice cabins they did another lady an avenue lady there what she does is manages people's cabins that don't live there and she rents them for them and, and then makes a commission and does very well at that. This is another home she rents. Other people thin. This is a thinning project that you can do there in the woods. Of course, you can run a mill, make lumber. 
And it all adds up to me to a wonderful life living naturally. I hope you've enjoyed it. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.